I'm Sinead O'Carroll, editor of The Journal. Before we start this episode, I wanted to ask you something. When the survivors of mother and baby homes felt dismissed by the state's formal investigation, your presenter, Orla Ryan, was really motivated to produce even more reliable, meaningful, independent journalism about what happened to the women and children in these institutions. Our aim has been to provide them with a space to tell you about their own lives, in their own words, using their own voices. So, over the past year, we've been making Redacted Lives, which, as you've been hearing, does just that. It has been a big commitment from our newsroom, but one that we hope you are finding worthwhile and that you believe should be heard by as many people as possible. Now, we're asking listeners like you to support us. A donation will go a long way in helping us to keep doing work like this. Please go to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute and choose between a monthly or one-off contribution. Redacted Lives is a six-part documentary series by The Journal that tells the real story of mother and baby homes, from what happened within to how the state continues to deny survivors access to information, proper redress and ownership of their true stories. The episodes explore the lives of the mothers and their children in their own voices and their own words. How they were forced back from England to Ireland how mothers were separated from their children, and how a commission of inquiry raised more questions than answers. We're following some of those families on their journeys of possible reconnections. We will revisit Tum, where the discovery of an unofficial burial site of hundreds of babies uncovered the horrors of the homes to many Irish people for the first time. We are also putting the state's botched attempt at righting these wrongs under the microscope and will seek answers from the minister responsible. Episode 2. High Walls. This episode contains themes of addiction, suicide and abuse. Yes. Is that where you're from, Marie? Yes, yes. Okay, so yeah. you're born in Cork. Yeah. So I suppose going back there, maybe you just bring us through um, your your beginning, like your family, what your dad did, or oh. many in the family. Few other people have heard this audio before. When I found out I was pregnant, I just told my mother, right. and I was just... Your brothers and sisters? Oh, there was 11 of us there. Oh, 11 of you. And where did you come in the family? I came sent, I was sixth from the top, was this okay. Mara, Mara's. Right, so sort of nearly in the middle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is audio testimony given in 2015 to the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes. The Commission's final report proved to be hugely controversial when it was published in 2021. Many women who spoke to the inquiry said their words were misrepresented and differed from the account they gave to officials. As these complaints started to surface, it emerged that all audio files were deleted by the Commission once it was complete meaning it was difficult to verify what evidence the report's authors had or had not heard. The Commission argued at the time that it was legally obliged to delete the audio files, noting some people had requested to remain anonymous. But legal experts disagreed and, after a huge public outcry, the recordings were recovered. Monica Walsh, whose voice you just heard, gave evidence to the Commission in 2015. Her interview was among the audio recovered. Until now... Only Monica, her family and the Commission have heard this interview. 
You will hear Monica discussing with the Commission staff how she was sent to Ardwara Mother and Baby Home in County Meath, where in 1979 she gave birth to a baby girl, Nicola. So you were just told on this particular day you were going? I was just told I was going. Right. And we went on a journey in the car for miles, for hours and hours and hours. So you were going from Cork up to Haven't Meath. Yeah. That's right. And I was, remember standing at the big black door. And I'm going to break the room. Yeah, well, you know, you can go yeah. back to that. Or if you find that so upsetting, no, uh, yeah. It's a very vivid memory. It is. It's the, yeah. As you're talking about it, you could, it's happening all over. Exactly, yeah. 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 You've got tissue, I know, yeah. And, and were your mother and father with they you? Were, they were. They were. Okay. The two of them were with yeah. me. And we got out of the car and the nun came out to the door. Yeah. And brought us into this room, we say, like this now, yeah. sitting room as yes. such. Yeah. And she just turned around and she said, you can go now. To, the, to your parents? They were going anyway, I know what. Yeah. They were yeah. going anyway. Yeah. yeah. And we'll take it from here. Right. And they went and that was it. And, and did you find that very frightening? Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Monica's pregnancy was viewed by her parents as a problem that needed to be hidden away from prying eyes and twitching curtains. She gave a candid account of that experience to the commission, but finds its final report at odds with her reality of late 1970s Ireland. It put much of the blame for women's experiences on their parents and the fathers of their children. Monica says this is unfair she doesn't blame her parents for sending her away. They felt immense pressure from the Catholic Church and wider society to do so. It was simply the Ireland they were living in. Parents often sent their pregnant daughter away to an institution, believing it was in her best interests. Some women understood their parents' motives, but for others, their relationship with their mother and father was irreparably damaged. Monica also doesn't blame the father of her child, he had no say in what would happen and was sent abroad by his own parents. For Monica, the greatest trauma came later, in particular what happened after she left the institution. But this experience was overlooked in the Commission's report. She felt as though her voice had been ignored all over again. I met Monica at her home in Mallow. We sat at her kitchen table and read part of the report. She was still coming to terms with its contents. The way it was written... It was my mother and father. No mention of anything else. Three or four lines, and that was that was 40 years in three or four lines of what went on. That's why I said they stopped when you came out of the home. They only looked in the home. They never looked about the trauma that affected all the people when they came out of the home. Being sent to Dunboyne changed the course of Monica's life forever. She had tried to keep her daughter, even arranging for a family friend to look after Nicola until she was able to do so herself. But her efforts were in vain. The arrangement didn't work out and she was left with no financial or emotional support. After months of agonising over her decision, one day during her lunch break she went to the local courthouse and signed the adoption papers. Monica immediately regretted her decision. She turned to alcohol and medication in a bid to numb the pain. My life spiralled completely out of control. I took to I took to drink and tablets. I ended up a zombie, complete zombie. Because when I got 
the tablets, Xanax from the doctor, where it says on the bottle, take one three times a day. It just read to me, take one when you need one. I'd wake up in the morning, I took one. I ha- came down the stairs, I took another one. I go to the kitchen for a cup of tea, I needed another one. I remember one time, a month's supply was gone in a week and a half. And I went down to my doctor because I didn't know what to do. That's the only thing I knew. That's the only way I knew how to cope. And I went down to my doctor and he prescribed me more and just said, make them last the month this time. Monica is one of tens of thousands of women who spent time in a mother and baby institution. Everyone's story is different, but the same themes emerge time and time again. In 20th century Ireland, the Catholic Church exerted huge control over almost every aspect of people's lives. Becoming pregnant outside marriage was viewed as one of the most shameful things a person could do. Women and girls who found themselves in this situation were hidden away. For the children, the truth about their birth and early life was then often hidden. Over the years, survivors have tried to find their children or parents but met constant roadblocks along the way. Many mothers were told it was not the right time to contact their child. It was not the right time when their child was 10 years old, or 20, or 50. It was never the right time. Some people received documents, but only after much persistence and heartache along the way. These files were generally heavily redacted, with only scraps of information given here and there. The person receiving them was essentially handed a jigsaw with many missing pieces and no idea of what the final picture looked like. Many people got information from an unofficial source. A social worker going above and beyond what they were officially allowed to do. A priest or nun with access to documents. Or, in more recent years, some DIY investigation on social media. Survivors have been silenced throughout their lives, with external forces controlling the narrative of what they experienced. Many are only now telling their side of the story. Every corner I turned, every place I went, they slammed every single door in my face because they looked at me as if I was dirt on their feet. I had given birth to a baby, beautiful baby. They looked at me as if I'd done something wrong, bad. And I believed it, I suppose, at the time. I believed it at the time because that's... And it isn't just one person telling you, it is everyone. It is everyone telling you. How can you come up against, how do you come up against all of that? The report describes a dark, difficult and shameful chapter of very recent Irish history and a history that has had a very real and lasting consequences for many people. It holds up a mirror to aspects of our past which are painful and difficult and from the present day perspective often hard to comprehend. On the 13th of January 2021, 
the day after the Commission's final report was published. Michal Martin became the latest Taoiseach to deliver an apology to survivors of state-run institutions. On behalf of the state and all the citizens of the state, the government wishes to make a sincere and long overdue apology to the victims of childhood abuse for a collective failure to intervene, to detect their pain and to come to the rescue. Let me hope that this day and this debate, excuse me, heralds a new dawn for all those who feared that the dark midnight might never end. In 1999, Bertie Ahern apologised to victims of child abuse in residential institutions. And Kenny made a similar speech 14 years later, this time to survivors of Magdalene Laundries. Martin's apology and the associated report were meant to help the healing process. But for many, they just reopened old wounds. In his apology, Martin said the treatment of these women and their children is hard to comprehend in modern-day Ireland. The country has indeed moved on in many ways, but the Catholic Church still exerts huge influence, playing a role in the operation of most schools and many hospitals. Mother and baby homes were typically run by religious orders, but received funding from the state. In the Dáil debate that followed Martin's apology, Social Democrats TD Holly Cairns spoke about how the state continued to fund these institutions, despite being aware of poor conditions and a high infant mortality rate. There was no sex education, a ban on contraception, no access to abortion and virtual immunity for rapists. Pregnancies were inevitable. And when they happened, the girls and women were left with nowhere else to go except these institutions. In these institutions, the worst forms of abuse and neglect were systematically carried out. The scale of infant deaths is incomprehensible. It borders on mass murder. Not only was the state aware of this, but it continued to fund and manage the homes and the religious orders profited from this horrendous cruelty and systematic abuse. That an organisation who facilitated the worst kinds of human rights violations imaginable still has any hand, act or part in our schools and hospitals is deeply disturbing. Mother and baby homes were part of a wider network of institutions where so-called fallen women and their children were sent. Women who became pregnant out of wedlock more than once were known as repeat offenders and often sent to Magdalene laundries where they were used as unpaid labour, sometimes for the rest of their lives. But they were prison-like places where people were dehumanised and separated from everything they knew and loved. And many people, many women and girls were forced to remain in these institutions for life. Caelan Hogan is the author of Republic of Shame, a book that explores Ireland's history of punishing unmarried mothers and their children. She believes, despite what the Commission found, women were indeed forced into these institutions. They had no choice but to become part of the system. When we look at the Commission of Investigations report that claims that women and girls were not sent or were not forced into these institutions, I think that's a case of semantics. If you have no other choice, if you have nowhere to go, uh, if you are being told by people in positions of power and authority, whether they be priests, social workers, doctors, 
and that this is the place you are going to go, that is coercion and that is being forced. And it was a way that the state sort of asserted itself. Um, You know, we have to remember that de Valera tried to have the constitution approved by the Pope at one stage. And, you know, this was the ideal that we were a pure Catholic nation. And anyone who went outside of that ideal or challenged it in any way, who challenged the law and doctrine and teachings of the church, were hidden away, were punished, were incarcerated. And this came down from the hierarchy of the male-dominated church. They were informed, and again, the bishops put out, and the Archbishop McQuaid in particular, you know, there were strict instructions about these women. Mary Harney told us in episode one that she was born in Bespera Mother and Baby Home in Cork in 1949. Her mother, Peggy, was one of the so-called fallen women. They were to be kept behind high walls and their children were stamped uh, as if it was a bad gene that ran through a family, you know. And so separation of family was paramount to break the cycle, if you like, or to... um, punish the women. Consequently, the children were also punished and people were free to make fun of us. And, you know, many people threatened their children with, if you don't behave, I'll send you up to the Good Shepherds, you know. People knew it was a place of incarceration. People knew that what was happening there wasn't uh, what it should be. Because otherwise, why threaten your child with, with going to a place like that? Mary was sent to live with an elderly couple in Cork City in a practice known as boarding out, a precursor to fostering. Other children were adopted, sometimes illegally. Those who remained were sent to industrial schools, often brutal places where physical and sexual abuse was common. Industrial schools were established to care for neglected, orphaned or abandoned children. They were run by religious orders, both Catholic and Protestant, and funded by the state. A commission was set up in 2000 to investigate the abuse suffered by children in these schools. It culminated in the Ryan Report being published in 2009. The report found that sexual and physical abuse was endemic in many institutions. I was born in the Bespera Mother and Baby Institution in Cork and for the first two and a half years of my life my mother and I were both incarcerated in that institution and at age two and a half I was taken and I'm using the word taken as it's meant uh, without any paperwork because I haven't been able to find any so I was taken from there by an elderly couple Uh, they took me to live in a house in Cork which was extremely old-fashioned and dark And even though the institutions were places of incarceration, the babies' dormitories were in rooms that had a lot of light. The windows and the noise of other children and the comings and goings. All of a sudden, I was deposited into this dark place with two people who were so old. And I had to say, Mommy and Daddy, and I didn't have any idea who they were. It was a terrifying experience for me. Mary was neglected and physically abused in her foster home. 
At the age of five, she was removed and sent to the Good Shepherd Industrial School in Sunday's Well, just outside Cork City, where the abuse continued. Mary compares her time there to being in prison. She was beaten and forced into child labour, like so many others in industrial schools. She and other children had to scrub floors on their hands and knees and clean headstones in the graveyard with wire brushes until their knuckles bled. They were at times also denied food and water. The girls were often punished in a cruel and violent manner for so-called bad behaviour, such as crying or wetting the bed. One of the terrible things that I've never forgiven the system for, I've never forgiven them for any of their um, treatment of us, is the what happened to the girls who wet the bed. They were not considered to have any kind of a medical condition. They were considered to be lazy and disobedient. And so when I was about 13 or thereabouts, maybe 14, I was given the duty to get up four or five times a night and wake up these girls that wet the bed and make them go to the toilet, drag them in if they were half asleep. Given that duty, and knowing you'd be punished if anything went wrong, you you stayed awake. Obviously, girls still wet the bed. However, one particular girl was meted out, was sought out for severe punishment. Some people, they didn't wet the bed every night, but this one did. One morning, the nun in charge, you know, was aware of the fact, because they used to check the bed, so she knew this girl had wet the bed. And so for punishment, that morning after Mass, when we went down to the refectory for breakfast, the girl who wet the bed and myself had the wet sheet put over our head and were made to stand in the corner during the whole of breakfast. We never got any breakfast either. And we were humiliated. And I realized at that time, that was the time I realized, I think compassion entered my life. I remember reaching out under the sheet and holding her hand and we held hands. And all the other girls behaved as if we weren't there. They didn't see it. You were in the corner with like the orange soaked sheet over mm-hmm. your head and you were just made to stand there while everybody else ate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a child, Mary had no idea who or where her mother was. She later found out that her mum also grew up in an industrial school. In many families, more than one generation spent time in an institution. In some cases, a grandparent, parent and child all passed through an industrial school, mother and baby home or Magdalene laundry. Caelan Hogan explains that once you were in the system, it was very difficult to get out. It's so important to see it as a system and not to sort of silo it into, you know, in the way that the investigations have into the industrial schools, the Magdalene laundries, the mother and baby home institutions. So many people that I've spoken to went through multiple institutions throughout their lives. 
And it has a generational impact where, you know, people born in a mother and baby home institution, you know, might grow up within an industrial school where, you know, people suffered horrific abuse and, and inhumane treatment, particularly for, for women who went through that system, girls who went through that system might be sort of turfed out of an institution as soon as the state stopped paying for them, become pregnant very quickly because they were given no education about their own bodies and then might you know end up sent back to a mother baby home institution and then possibly to a Magdalene laundry. And so this cycle of institutionalization that affected families and generations in Ireland has had such a deep impact on people. It's still having an impact today. And so, yes, I think it's important to see it as a system and one, you know, that beyond the the number of institutions that the Commission of Investigation focused on, there were so many religious-run agencies, um, rescue societies, and even, um, you know, everyday people who colluded in this system. This system had deep roots that ran through Irish society, but how was it allowed to flourish for so long? Ireland has learned a lot about the realities of these institutions in recent decades, but some of it was known at the time too. And even if it wasn't, it can be hard to put yourself in the shoes of parents, who in many cases willingly sent their daughters into Catholic institutions. Katrina Crow, former head of special projects at the National Archives, says the commission failed to adequately examine why families did this. Particularly the conclusion around family and societal responsibility for this, which really hurt and wounded people. There's no analysis at all about the power nexus that you find between church and state in independent Ireland, which is sort of unique in Europe. It was an overwhelmingly Catholic country, and that meant a lot of the population absolutely believed in the Catholic Church as the the arbiter of moral value in society. And we're also frightened by them in the sense that if your daughter got pregnant outside marriage, it was likely her name would be read off the altar in the, the local church. And there was a huge network of congregations and parish priests and bishops all combining together to support and encourage the mother and baby homes to be the place of so-called refuge for women and girls who are are pregnant outside marriage. No attention paid, for example, to rape cases or any of that. That wasn't considered to be important. You know, we have evidence of girls as young as 13 having been raped and becoming pregnant. That was not seen as significant. It's a very dark period in, in Irish modern history. And it's precisely in a way, I think, why people get tired of all of this because there is a sense of, of, of a consciousness of a kind of guilt in people who look back at it, many of whom knew. I mean, every town had a tall building with high walls around it, or many did outside. People knew what was going on, and they still did nothing, or very few did anything about it. So it's, it's a failure both of imagination and analysis to come to the conclusions that they came to. More than 100,000 women and children passed through mother and baby homes in Ireland during the 20th century. The number of women entering the system reached its peak in the 1960s and 70s, but some institutions operated until the late 1990s. Bespra, for example, closed in 1999. The mass silencing of women like Monica and Mary meant that most of their experiences have been unheard. For many, their own stories remained unknown even to themselves, as they spent decades searching for information 
about who they are or what became of their child. State agencies and religious orders often remain the gatekeepers of information. They decide who gets to know what and when. But this is slowly changing. There was every different walks of life in there. And everyone treated the same because they were unmarried. And they had brought a stain on the government of Ireland, on the Catholic Church of Ireland, on the nuns of Ireland, on the parents of Ireland, on the brothers and sisters, the whole of Ireland. And all we done, all we done, we got pregnant. That's all we done, nothing else. Monica got her chance to speak more publicly because of one woman. Access to records is a huge issue for people who pass through the system. In some cases, vital records have gone missing or never existed in the first place. This was brought to national attention in 2014 when it emerged that almost 800 children could have been buried at the site of a former mother and baby home in Tume, County Galway. Virtually no burial records could be found. It's likely we still wouldn't know about this or have had a commission of investigation if one woman hadn't taken it upon herself to find the records others sought to hide. I had to find out, first of all, how many died, and I got that from the births, deaths, marriages and gold with the registration office. I got the staggering number of 796. And I said, where are all these babies? So, again, I was told, probably a plot in the main tomb graveyard there, but I said, there's no plaque or nothing. And I was getting destroyed, and now there's lots of babies buried, no plaque or nothing on them. What do you, you know, what are you on about? What really proved everything for me was the present map of where, of that area where the grotto is, where the boys found the bones. I overlaid that on top of an old map, and lo and behold, it said across the older map, sewage tank. So this was no chamber. This was a sewage tank belonged to the workhouse. So I started putting two and two together. Next time on Redacted Lives. So I went down to the local police station and I made a complaint. I want to report a missing person. The guard said, uh, yeah, and what's the name? And when did it happen? I said, 1951. I thought they were going to take me away in a white coat. We gave them up maybe to spare them the savagery of gossip, the wink and the elbow language of delight, in which the holier than those were particularly fluent. They jumped down into that site, and where they jumped, the ground kind of gave way. What they saw underneath was a slab with a crack in it. And being young boys, of course, they prized open the slab. What they saw was little small skulls and bones all piled on top of each other. Thanks for listening to episode two of Redacted Lives. During the making of this podcast, we asked each of the religious orders which ran the institutions mentioned if they would like to participate in the series. They all declined. The Congregation of Our Lady of Charity of the Good Shepherd which ran Ardwara Mother and Baby Home and the Industrial School on Sunday as well, issued a statement to say they had cooperated with the Commission of Investigation. They also said they did their best to support women at a time when they had been rejected by their families and wider society. If you pass through a mother and baby home or another institution and want to share your story, you can contact us in confidence by emailing redactedlives at thejournal.ie. 
Redacted Lies was created and presented by me, Orla Ryan, and produced by Nikki Ryan. Sinead O'Carroll was the executive producer. Taz Kelleher was our sound engineer, and design was by Lorcan O'Reilly. With thanks to Dara Brophy, Laura Byrne, Christine Bohan, Susan Daly, Adriana Costa, and Jonathan McRae. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in these episodes, you can contact the Samaritans by calling 116-123. Subscribe to Redacted Lives, and you can help us keep telling important stories like this by sharing this podcast with a friend or leaving us a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow all the latest updates on thejournal.ie or via our Twitter page, at Redacted Lives. The next episode in the series will be available next Thursday.